ghastly greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes, as always, are courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey, and I am your host, Tessa Morrow. Now, this week is all about Yosemite, and when I started working on this episode, there was no fire, like, at all. Life was great. People were visiting, animals were happy, trees were joyous, and now there's a fire. And so that happened when I was almost done writing this episode. So my thoughts do go out to the sequoia trees, the wild animals, the firefighters who are fighting this, the visitors. It's just a shame when these fires happen. So my thoughts are definitely out to Yosemite right now. So Yosemite National Park, this World Heritage Site, is well known and recognized for its phenomenal waterfalls, its majestic crystal clear streams, its hauntingly beautiful granite cliffs, the wondrous mountains, and oh, those beautiful glaciers, home to black bears, wolves, the wily coyote, and so many other amazing creatures, big and small. And one unique thing about Yosemite, besides the campgrounds, the trails, and an outdoor paradise, it also has a historic cemetery in it. Galen Clark, someone you will hear about later, is buried here. He was the first person to become a park ranger at Yosemite so many years ago. George Anderson, the first person to reach the peak of Half Dome over 4,737 feet from the valley floor is buried here as well. Lucy Brown, one of the last American Indian survivors of the Mariposa Battalion in 1851 and 11 graves of Yosemite Indians rest here as well. So truly a historic cemetery within this park. Around four to five million visitors come from all over the world to visit the spectacular park located in Northern California. And I am really ashamed to say that the few years that I lived in that part of the world, I never got to make it to Yosemite. It was always on my list, but my job required that I travel to different states and I was always busy And then all of a sudden I moved, and now when I go back to California, it's just the SoCal Hollywood area to go visit family. So unfortunately, I don't know if I'll ever make it there, but it's definitely still on my list, maybe someday. So Yosemite was the third to become a national park, the first being Yellowstone, and the second was Mackinac National Park, which I had an episode about Mackinac Island, so there we go. While third on the list of national parks, it was number one when Lincoln signed the Yosemite Land Grant in 1864, making it the first protected national land by the United States Congress. Seven hundred and forty-seven thousand nine hundred and fifty-six acres, seven hundred and fifty miles of trails, and ninety-five percent of this is wilderness. A dream for most, a nightmare for others. Many have come to Yosemite to visit and take in its glory and beauty and never come out alive again. The number of missing is unknown, the actual number, but I wanted to talk about a handful of them. And these are missing people, so I will just be using their first names. During my research, sadly, more and more names kept popping up. So in July of 1972, Dikran, a 
Cambridge student out of England. He's visiting the United States on holiday. He's having a great time, plans to hit up Florida before he heads back to the beautiful United Kingdom. The medical student asks park staff for directions to Half Dome and is last seen at Curry Village. He has never been found. In 1981, a 14-year-old girl named Stacy, she accompanies a group of six people, including her father, where they spend much of the day just enjoying the trails and the beauty Yosemite has to offer. They enjoy the trails on horseback. After several hours of riding, they take a break near Sunrise Sierra Camp. And Stacy, she wants to exercise those legs. Can't blame her. I've done that before. Ride all day. You just need a break. You need to get that circulation pumping. And she walks to a nearby lake. It's close enough so her father allows her to go off without him. An elderly gentleman does go along with her. The group had stayed behind but could see the man and the girl at the lake down below from where they were at. And the man sits on a large rock to take a break. She walks into a wooded area and she never comes back out. After a certain amount of time goes by without Stacy's return, a large party is conducted to search for her, involving sniff dogs, three helicopters, one being the park's own contract chopper, which was in the air for over 40 hours, park officials, guests, family, and friends. They comb that area inside and out. And the only morsel, the only shred of a clue that is discovered is the young girl's camera lens. Stacy has never been found. In July of 1988, Timothy, he disappears while out on a day hike to Poly Dome Lake. The last known sighting of him is at Murphy Creek Trailhead at 9 a.m. He's never seen again. In May of 1998, David, he heads out for the day to hike on Half Dome, and he never returns. And in April of 2000, Dublin native Kieran is on a two-week holiday. The last known sighting of the Irish man is April 5th at Yosemite's Curry Village. Red flags there are raised high when he does not check out the following day as he was supposed to. He was no stranger to hiking as he had just recently been hiking in the Himalayas. And a few months later, another disappearance. I'm unsure if this was in July or August, as I saw both months being mentioned in different articles, so unsure about the actual date. A woman named Ruth Ann vanishes. One of the last sightings is at Yosemite Medical Clinic, and also at Curry Village. She had mentioned to people that she was planning a hike from Yosemite Falls to Foresta. In 2008, eight Years after she was last seen, Ruth Ann's sleeping bag is discovered on the route she said that she would be taking to get to her hike near Fireplace Creek. In September of 2002, an elderly gentleman named Walter, he sets off to go on a hike on the White Wolf Trailhead, and he's never seen again. His car is found several weeks later on the trailhead. In June of 2005, skilled hiker, seasoned backpacker, and a great outdoorsman named Michael goes for a hike at the northern end of Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and then begins to head to the Pacific Crest Trail. He disappears during this trip and an extensive search is conducted. Even the canine unit could not detect his scent. He's never seen again. However, during the search, they did come upon items that belonged to Michael, including a water bottle, his backpack, a camera, a map, among other things. In June of 2011, a church group, they are hiking the upper Yosemite Falls. A gentleman named George, he's in the group. According to a hiking companion and friend of George's, the man somehow becomes separated from his group and is last seen near the top of upper Yosemite Falls. Now, What's interesting about this case is that I came upon articles that a few weeks after the disappearance of the young man, the park took down his missing posters. Now, I'm unsure if this is accurate and if it is why they did such a thing, because he does remain a missing person to this very day. So, again, unsure 
if this actually happened or not, but I did see this in a couple different things. In February of 2016, Alan is at Chicken Ranch Casino, and he leaves around hmm, 4 p.m. Security cameras, they do capture his final known moments on Earth as he innocently walks across the parking lot, never to be seen again. Later that same year, in September, Peter also goes missing. He leaves his campsite at White Wolf Campground. He texts his son saying he's en route to Yosemite and he's never heard from or seen again. July of 2020, a woman named Sandra goes missing near Merced Pass in Buena Vista Crest. Her last sighting, July 4th, near the Chiquito Pass trailhead. She had crashed her vehicle and walked away. Witnesses had seen this accident and asked her, Hey, are you okay? Do you need any assistance? Can we give you a ride? Anything. She declined all offers of help, unfortunately. Now, later on, her sleeping bag is located right on the inside border of the National Park. She is yet to be located. And again, this just happened in 2020. Now, last year, July 25th of 2021, yes, a year to the very day this episode is being released, July 25th, a man named Richard disappears. He goes on a day hike, leaving his camp, which is located near Lower Merced Pass Lake, and he heads in the direction towards Red Peak Pass. The 72-year-old man was last seen using white trekking poles, and he had a navy blue day pack with him. In some reports, I saw that he had a hiking companion with him. They must have gotten separated along the way because I didn't see anything about his friend missing. And later that same year, last year, less than a year ago, in September, Joel, a U.S. Army reservist, goes to Yosemite with a plan of doing a three-day trip, a solo hike from Hetch Hetchy, and he never comes back. A park ranger sees him on the first day of his three-day trip near a steep section of Shahanasi Dam. This is the last known sighting. He has a wife and a young child who are waiting for him to come home. Now, since this is so recent, I want to share a list of things that are believed to have been with him during his travels. As so many people go visit, I mean, who knows, maybe somebody will find something. And if it's not of Joel's, it might be somebody else who's missing. So for people who are heading towards the National Park or planning a trip, be on the lookout for these items. A floppy boonie hat. A dark colored hammock. A 1918 U.S. Army steel cup. A red and black camelback type day pack. A bright red inflatable kayak with a paddle a collapsible stove in a black bag, a headlamp, a yellow bear can, a garden solar GPS watch, a bright green mummy sleeping bag, and fishing gear. I mean, this military man obviously was prepared. I mean, you know, the, the guy even had a stove and a kayak. I mean, he had more and then some what somebody would expect to have on a trip. So what happened to him? On the site that released these items, it reads this. If you find one of these items, please leave it in place. Note the location and the coordinates if you can. Take photos and email the info to yosemite.search.rescue at gmail.com. And I want to read that email one more time because a lot of people do go to Yosemite. And maybe you're planning a trip there. So again, that's yosemite.search.rescue at gmail.com. I mean, who knows? If one of these items, even the smallest, is located, it may be the answer into finding this young man, bringing him back to his family. The people I just mentioned is just a handful of people to go missing here at Yosemite. My thoughts and prayers go out to every single one of their loved ones, and within time, I hope each of these people can be found. Yosemite is a place of rugged beauty, and danger lurks around the corner often. Even the most seasoned outdoors men and women have found themselves to be in troublesome incidents, some losing their lives. 
While talking about that in a moment, I wanted to talk real quick about John Muir, often referred to as the father of national parks. The mountains are calling and I must go. He was a skilled and seasoned mountaineer, and one time while in Yosemite, he runs into some trouble. He writes about this account that happened in 1873 in one of his books titled Steep Trails, which I believe was released after his death. Quote, I was ascending a precipitous rock front, smoothed by glacial action, when I suddenly fell. For the first time since I touched foot to Sierra rocks, after several somersaults, I became insensible from the shock, and when consciousness did return, I found myself wedged among short, stiff bushes. I could not remember what made me fall or where I had fallen from, but I saw that if I had rolled a little further, my mountain climbing would have been finished, for just beyond the bushes, the canyon wall steepened, and I might have fallen to the bottom. Now, clearly, this incident stayed with him for the rest of his life. I mean, he felt that he almost died that day, that he could have died that day. And thankfully, those bushes were there to stop him. The father of national parks was mesmerized by Yosemite. He hears so much about it and finally gets to visit. And it gave quite the first impression to him. He writes this. I was overwhelmed by the landscape, scrambling down steep cliff faces to get a closer look at the waterfalls, whooping and howling at the vistas, jumping tirelessly from flower to flower. He enjoys it so much that he actually returns to Yosemite for some time, and he works as a shepherd. While John was able to walk away, most likely shaken by the incident and maybe limping, but... Still, he walked or limped away. Many have not been so lucky. The end of May in 1993, a British rock climber named Derek is visiting from Manchester, England. Climbing and hiking was this young man's life. His father had taught him early on in life, and he had been doing it ever since. He is dubbed with the nickname Dr. Death. He comes to the United States in 1983 and falls in love with the area, and he stays for the rest of his life, spending most of that time in my home state, Colorado. One fateful day, he is in Yosemite, where he is on Stexiloth Route, a 1,600-foot north base on Sentinel Rock. It is believed that Derek stepped on a slippery rock and lost his balance while free soloing. It is thought the young man did not have any protective gear on him, and he falls several hundred feet to his death. And a few months later, that same year, in September of 1993, a Czechoslovakian man named Miroslav, who is an avid rock climber and conducted tons of solo climbs in his climbing career, he is on Lost Arrow in Yosemite. Now, it's unknown exactly what took place, but what is known is that he went out for a day of solo climbing. It's believed that he made it close to the top because his equipment is later located on the last ledge below the top. His body is discovered at the bottom of the gorge by one of his friends. And less than two years later, in July of 1995, a young couple named Jeannie and Mike are on a trip and head to Yosemite and while there they stop at Glacier Point and after parking the carts decided between the couple that they go on a walk but each wants to kind of go other way so they do that innocent enough. Mike returns and sees that his girlfriend is still on her walk. He waits patiently after a certain amount of time goes by and no Jeannie. He begins to search for her but finds nothing, like at all. He recruits the help of park rangers who conduct an extensive search, which involves several dogs and helicopters. The canines act erratically, and because of this, the handlers believe there was foul play involved. The FBI is brought into the investigation. They question the boyfriend, Mike, and in the end, they dismiss him as a potential suspect. He wants to find his girlfriend, just like everybody else, if not more. Fast forward a few weeks later in September, two fishermen, they're enjoying a day of fishing when they come upon a gruesome discovery. 
a young woman's body is found in a river, three miles from where she was last seen by Bridal Vale. The remains are identified as the missing woman, Jeannie. In November of 1998, extreme sportsman and a free soloing man named Dan leaves his home in Lake Tahoe and heads to Yosemite where he plans a controlled free fall jump from Yosemite's leaning tower, 700 foot climb. Unfortunately, while doing this, his rope fells and he does pass away. Now, before this deadly day, he accomplished a ton of neat things and often recorded videos of him doing these, and apparently he had a rather large audience who enjoyed watching him. Near his home, Lake Tahoe, Dan did do his speed solo at Bear's Reach, over 400 feet in 4 minutes and 25 seconds. That's certified badassery right there. In October of 2006, a free climber with an impressive list of first ascents, including El Captain in 1988, Half Dome in 1993, and Leaning Tower in 2004, all in Yosemite, and then Yukon Territories in Canada, Trango Tower in Pakistan, Cape Farewell in Greenland, and Poinotu Mountains in Kenya. His name was Todd. And he did all of those things and so many others. One day, Todd is in Yosemite and attempts to free climb Jesus Built My Hot Rod, which is up the face of Leaning Tower, which he had completed two years earlier. And sadly, he falls 500 feet to his death and he dies just days before his birthday. The following month, November of 2006, a woman named Emily is hiking on Half Dome during a time when the cables were down, and she falls to her death. And just a half a year later, in April of 2007, a young lady named Jennifer is in the same area on Half Dome as Emily was months earlier, and she also passes away there. Less than two months later, avid hiker and mountaineer from Japan, Hirofumi, also slips and falls to his death on Half Dome. As of right now, I believe 13 people have died here at Half Dome alone. Half Dome is a seven-mile route and is 8,836 feet. Only 300 people that I saw are allowed here now every single day, and only 50 are permitted on the summit. I think it's like a lottery win kind of thing for these people, so it's literally the luck of the draw. Now, July 20th of 2011, three hikers, Ramina, Niños, and Hormiz, they are swept over the deadly Vernal Fall. One loses their grip and a friend tries to help, then another, and before several visitors' eyes, a nightmare unfolds. The worst case scenario, their bodies have never been found and they are presumed dead. Two of them were embracing, people saw, they were hugging as they fell, 317 feet. A witness describes the horrific scene, quote, Everyone was screaming. People were praying. What I will take away with me forever is the look on the grown man's face as he was floating down that river, knowing he was going to die and that nobody could save him. Unquote. The same eyewitness shares what they saw happen just moments before the fall, while well, on top of the mist trail, the witness sees people on the river side of the barricade. A man is holding a child and posing for a picture. The child does not look happy. This doesn't sit well with fellow visitors, and they tell him, hey, come back over, please. Like, you know, come to safety, which he does. He complies. But sadly, two other people, I think part of the same group, they proceed to go over the barricade so they can get a picture as well. The woman loses her balance and slips, and we know the rest. Now, according to the park website, more people die on the Mist Trail than anywhere else in Yosemite. In 2013, Kenneth, who's visiting from Minnesota, tells the front desk person at the Awani Hotel that he was planning to go on a day trip, hiking up to Vernal Fall. He never returns. A search and rescue is conducted, but sadly turns into a recovery when his body is found at the very base of the falls. 
The year 2015 proves to be an extremely fatal one as several incidents take place. The first one happens in May when two friends, Dean and Graham, die in a freak accident when they were wingsuit flying. Adrenaline junkies, base jumpers, free climbers, and high liners. These men, they did it all and they loved it. While I am unsure about Graham, I did see that Dean had recently solo climbed El Captain, a vertical rock formation, a granite monstrous beast, which is around 3,000 feet from base of the summit. He had also speed climbed the reticent wall, which is actually considered one of the most challenging routes on El Captain with friends, Graham possibly being in that group. I'm unsure. They did this in 34 hours and 57 minutes, taking off an impressive five days of the existing time. I mean, that's just like phenomenal. Five days. Like, wow. Dean was also one of the three people to highline Lost Aerospire, a detached pillar in Yosemite. In the middle of May, Dean and Graham are attempting a proximity wingsuit flight from Taft Point above Yosemite Valley. They had flown here before successfully in the past with nothing happening and looking forward to doing it again. Well, things go terribly wrong in a split second when poor Graham hits a side wall and while Dean clears the notch, he immediately crashes afterwards. Both men do die instantly due to the impact. Neither chute was deployed. Uh, utterly heartbreaking end for two young men who had done so much in their lives and had plans to do so much more as well. The next deadly incident of 2015 occurs when a tree limb falls from a tree and crashes down onto a tent and kills two unsuspecting children at the Yosemite Upper Pines campground. Now, several people... I read, woke up in the campground, hearing the sound of a loud crack and blood-curdling screams at 4.15 a.m. Two teens gone. So, so heart-wrenching. Tragedy strikes the following month in September when a missing man named James's body is found by park rangers. He had disappeared three weeks earlier when he had started a day hike to Upper Yosemite Falls in mid-August. His body was found in the North Dome vicinity. Like 2015, the year 2018 is a bad year for Yosemite. First, a man whose identity I could not find, he dies at the park. Then in April, an Israeli tourist, Tomer, is visiting the park. And during his hike, right as he is getting on the top of the Nevada Fall, the young man falls several hundred feet to his death. And in June... Avid climbers and best friends Jason and Tim fall to their deaths from El Captain. The duo is seen approaching Mammoth Terraces. A friend who had been with them earlier but had let them pass him and is now 200 feet below Jason and Tim hears commotion up above, knowing it's his friends, then frantic screaming. Immediately afterwards, he sees Jason fly past him, then violently hits the granite face. He then hears Tim yell, oh, fuck, as the rope yanks him off the wall. The rope snags onto a rock, and there is a microsecond of hope, a glimmer of hope. But due to the weight of two people, it's just too much to bear, and the men sadly fall to their deaths. We are still in 2018 when a married couple visiting from India, Vishnu and Minakashi, fall to their deaths from Taft Point, 800 feet below. The young couple have only really been married for a few years. They married at a Hindu temple in India. Before her death, Minakashi wrote this in a blog, quote, I am a girl who loves to liven up every moment of her life and goes by the motto, live every moment, laugh every day, love without limits, and that brings me to this amazing guy, exceptionally patient, who showers me with unconditional love, Vishnu, my dearest husband. Now in 2019, a Romanian tourist named Lucian is near the Bridal Veil waterfall when he stepped on some wet rocks and he fell. He was taken to the hospital where he was declared dead. 
Um, around the same time, two other men are injured in the same area and they had to be rescued. Just over the past few years, at least 23 people have been injured at Bridal Vale, 14 with head injuries. These are just the reported numbers. I mean, who knows the actual number? With a 617-foot drop down a sheer granite cliff, it's hauntingly gorgeous and comes with the legend that is connected to the Awani tribe. They claimed the falls were haunted by an evil, malevolent spirit known as Pohono. <laughs> Pohono apparently tries to lure people to their untimely deaths, creating strange and bizarre rainbows, attracting the attention of unsuspecting people, wanting to get a closer look, then they plunge to their deaths. Legend goes that two women were picking berries at the top of the falls when a mist suddenly swirls up. One of the women gets too close and a terrible wind bursts through with such force that it throws the woman down the falls. The chief blamed Pohono. And I saw something else regarding the Awani tribe and its connection to Tanaya Canyon. Now, apparently the Awani were infamous for stealing others' livestock, people's livelihood, and were basically asked to relocate. If you can't, you know, keep your hands off our stuff, you got to go. Well, Chief Tanaya did not appreciate this request. They remain there. They do not leave. And they continue to steal livestock. Well, eventually armed forces were brought in to take action. During this battle, the chief's son is killed, among many others. This obviously enrages Tanaya, and he curses Yosemite Valley. Kill me, Captain, as you killed my son, as you would kill my people if they were to come to you. You would kill all my race if you had the power. You have made me sorrowful, my life dark. You killed the child of my heart. Why not kill the father? You may kill me, Sir Captain, but you will not live in peace. I will follow in your footsteps. I will not leave my home, but be with the spirits among the rocks, the waterfalls, and the rivers, and in the wind. Wherever you go, I will be with you. You will not see me, but you will fear the spirit of the chief and grow cold. Tanaya Canyon is known as the Bermuda Triangle of Yosemite. Just last year in 2021, the park suffers more loss. In June, a beloved professor named James from Cal State passes away while hiking from the White Wolf to the Glen all-in trailhead. He was found in Leconte Falls. He was a professor for biological sciences for 31 years. He was one of those professors. You learned, he was friendly, he was passionate, he was well-liked and respected. And from what I read from several people, he was one of the friendliest people around. The following month, in July, Fred is visiting from Nevada. He goes out for a solo hike one day, and he never returns. It was not released how he died, but a friend did share that he fell. His body was found by the peak of Mount Clark, and it said that Fred had climbed every mountain over 14,000 feet in California. So no easy feat. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me. Very impressive. The following month, August, a quadruple tragedy is discovered when a family consisting of a father, John, the mother, Ellen, their daughter, Miju, and their family dog, Oski, are all found deceased. Search and rescue found them near the South Fork of the Merced River. Now, it's believed they hiked six miles and it got to be in the triple digits. Their cause of deaths are related to hypothermia, and possible dehydration. And it's not just rock climbing and hiking accidents. Back in 1938, a transcontinental and western air Douglas DC-2 is scheduled to depart San Francisco and land in Winslow, Arizona. 
Two hours into their flight, they encounter what would become known as the most severe storm the West Coast had seen in a whopping 64 years. And soon the captain, he notices ice forming on those airplane wings. The plan is to land in Fresno, but instead the worst scenario happens. They crash in Yosemite. A huge search is conducted in hopes of finding the TWA and the nine people who were in that aircraft. They search the Sierra Nevada mountains high and low. No sign, no clue, nothing whatsoever. Three months later, a 23-year-old local resident named H.O. Collier performs his own search. He knows they are out there somewhere. The families, their friends, hell, the community, they've waited long enough. What happened to these people? What happened to the plane? The young, determined man hikes the snowy terrain of Wawona, California, and on the 12th day of June, he discovers the wrecked remains of the transcontinental. It was partially buried by snow of the Buena Vista Crest within the National Park's limits. One plane crash, no survivors, nine deaths. Eight of those bodies were thrown from the plane, while one body, that of a stewardess, remained trapped in the plane. And it's believed that the plane crashed into the mountain 200 feet below the summit. And July 10th, 1996, 162,000 tons of rock and other dangerous debris come crashing down, traveling at the amazing speed of 160 miles per hour. An earthquake was caused by the rock slide and was immediately followed by a sonic boom. One hiker will perish from this landslide. It started as a quite normal day, uneventful. That changed in a heartbeat at 6.50 p.m. when a monstrous chunk of granite, about 78,000 cubic yards, detaches from a cliff between Washburn Point, which I believe is where the fire started, this fire just recently, and Glacier Point. The damage was brutal and unforgiving. It uprooted or majorly damaged about 1,000 trees, a bridge was destroyed, and the nature center was badly damaged as well. One witness describes the scene, quote, The sky went black for six minutes as the dust raised by the cloud blocked out the late afternoon light. That same year, starting on New Year's Eve, a flood known as the Merced River Flood starts and ends January 5th the following year. It's considered the worst natural disaster of Yosemite to date. It's unusually warm for being winter in Northern California, and an intense tropical rain showers the valley. For 24 hours, Yosemite is greeted with unwanted torrential rain, snow melting at a rapid pace, and thar she blows. Merced River at Happy Isles peaked at a whopping 10,100 cubic feet per second during the flood. This disastrous flood left 2,100 people stranded in the park, but miraculously there were no recorded deaths. The damage, though, was horrific. It was 178 million big ones. Today, that would be 324,166,280 bucks, give or take. The 97 flood would not be the only one to make an appearance in Yosemite. There are several, actually. The top five all occurred in the 1900s, respectively in 37, 50, 55, 64, and of course, the 97 Merced flood. Three of those floods, the 37, 55, and 64, all took place in December. Two of these floods occurred on the exact same day, December 23rd, 1955, and December 23rd, 1964. The following year after the Merced flood, this is now in 1998, a park ranger is doing his rounds when he encounters a grisly sight. There, on a well-used walking trail, is not one, not two, but three severed deer heads. I mean, some sick freak killed these gorgeous, beautiful creatures, decapitates them, and then presents them 
for all to see. And I think this was a one-time incident, and unfortunately, the person or people behind this bloody incident have never been identified or held accountable. In 1999, Yosemite is thrust in the spotlight when a serial killer named Carrie Stainer murders several women, known as the Yosemite Killer. Before his true identity was revealed, that being a monster, he was hired in 1997 to work at Cedar Lodge Motel, located at the Highway 140 entrance to Yosemite. Between a few-month period, that being February to July of 1999, he will murder two women and two girls. More specifically, a mother, Carol, her daughter, Julie, and her friend, a 16-year-old exchange student, Sylviana, and then a Yosemite Institute employee, a woman named Joey. Carol and Sylvana were found in... Carol's burnt rental car in the trunk. An eerie note would later be sent with a hand-drawn map of where to find Carol's daughter Julie's body. The three women had stayed at Cedar Lodge where Carrie was employed. Weeks later, the decapitated body of a woman who was identified as Joey was located near a cabin that she had been living in at the park. Carrie Upon his arrest, admits to authorities that, hell, I've been fantasizing about murdering women since I was seven years old. He admits to all four murders. Carrie remains on death row in San Quentin, which means he will remain there until he's an old man, just like David Carpenter, the trailside killer, who's now 92 years old and who happens to be the oldest inmate at San Quentin. COVID acts, though, as executioner as it takes out 12 inmates in less than two months' time. Too bad Carrie wasn't in that list. I saw an article that Carrie Stainer had actually planned on murdering his longtime girlfriend and her two young daughters, but plans change when he is at work and he sees Carol with the two young girls, and he decides to target them instead. As I walked, there was a red car in the 500 building all by itself. The window was open, the curtain was open, and I can see inside that there were two young women and a mother and no man. Stainer's girlfriend's daughter had an eerie encounter to share. One time while at the lake, they're alone, and he starts to undress. Now, understandably so, this poor girl's terrified, and she's thankfully able to get away before he could do anything. But it's obvious his inappropriate actions meant he was up to no good and had extremely, excruciatingly ill intentions with the girl. It's also shared that the man who turned out to be a serial killer always had a backpack with him. Like a woman carries a purse. And it happened to be his murder kit, which had things like a gun, duct tape, and a knife. Everything that a serial killer needs. Besides admitting to the murders, he also tells authorities that he wanted to kill his girlfriend and rape and murder her daughters. I mean, just a disgusting individual. Now, moving on, it's now August of 2012. An outbreak of the dreaded hantavirus occurs at Yosemite's Curry Village. This leaves 10,000 people possibly at risk due to possible exposure. Eight recorded cases and three people do die from the virus. The culprit is believed to be due to new structures that were being replaced due to a rock fall that happened in 2008. It's thought that deer mice nested in the insulation between the walls. Now three Yosemite employees had flu-like symptoms and tested positive for a different strain of hantavirus. I mean, the hantavirus, it's truly scary shit. I actually know somebody who died from that virus a few years ago in Colorado. He was an amazing person. I knew him for several years. He would come into my mom's cafe, and he was always like that customer that you wanted because he was so friendly, so happy, just so cheerful, and a good tipper. I mean, he, he was just like a really great guy, and he did a lot of amazing things for the tiny community he lived in. And when you know someone who actually dies from the hantavirus, you become way more paranoid than the average person when you see mouse poop. 
The following summer in 2013, a 16-year-old man did not hesitate to jump literally into action when a nearby woman screamed, save my baby. The infant was swept up in the unforgiving current and is heading towards the deadly waterfall plunge at Vernal, a fall that, according to a park ranger, no one has ever survived. Half in the water and half out, he grabs the child, but he feels the tiny boy beginning to slip out of his hands. But thankfully, the child's father comes from behind and lifts them both out. If it weren't for the 16-year-old boy and his heroism, the baby would have certainly died as the child was only 20 feet away from the deadly drop. So good job, kiddo. That's amazing. That's 16 years old, did a very, very grown-up thing. The paranormal and supernatural are also linked to Yosemite National Park. Grouse Lake is a hotbed for sightings. The first encounter that was reported anyway dates back to 1857 when a young man named... Galen Clark is enjoying the beauty of the area, going for a walk and a hike, when out of nowhere he just hears this horrific unearthly cry coming from within the water. He thinks, is there a dog in there that's drowning? Is something's happening? Is it in danger? What else can this be? He describes what he heard to others, locals and visitors, and he's telling them, yeah, I think there was a dog over there. Well, He's told that, hey, that was no dog, but the cry of a young tribal child, a boy who drowned at that lake long ago. Clark, he explains his experience. He writes it down, quote, They replied that it was not a dog, that a long time ago an Indian boy had been drowned in the lake, and that at any time anyone passed there, he always cried after them, and no one dared to go into the lake for the boy would catch them by the legs and pull them down, and they would be drowned. I then concluded that it must have been some unseen waterfowl that made that cry, and at the time I thought that the Indians were trying to impose on my credibility, but I am now convinced they fully believed the story that they had told me." Unquote. Clark will end up becoming the park's first ranger ten years after his eerie encounter. Speaking of the gentleman, they have a tree there named after him. And unfortunately, during the time, as I said earlier, a fire started as I was writing this episode. And as of right now, I believe 25% is contained, possibly more. But I did see that the Clark tree is somewhat in the fire's path, or it was anyways, when I had written this episode. So I'm not too sure where that is right now, but Mariposa Grove is one of the most popular attractions at the National Park. I believe it's over 500 gigantic sequoias, many over 200 feet tall and dating back well over 2,000 years. Truly impressive stuff. I am keeping the firefighters again in my thoughts and prayers. There are two hotels in Yosemite that have paranormal activity. The first is Awani Hotel, which is haunted by the spirit of a woman named Mary. She was a phenomenal person and helped design the gorgeous hotel. She actually lived here, and yeah, you guessed it, she died here as well. The sixth floor is rather active, and it's believed this is where she spends much of her time. Staffing guests have seen her apparition wandering about. Then we have Sierra Sky Ranch, built back in 1877. And believe it or not, it hasn't always been a hotel. It was built with purpose of being a sanitarium for those unfortunate enough to contract tuberculosis. It's not shocking that because of this, many people have died here, including several children. After its stint as a sanitarium, it becomes a home for World War I vets. Then after that, it became a hotel, which it remains to this day. Many reports come in from guests and staff alike, seeking apparitions of small children in the main lobby of the hotel. Several have heard children giggling and laughing as they run through the halls. Doors will open and close all on their own. 
faucets, they'll turn off and on. Same with the lights. And from time to time, guests report being touched. Nothing aggressive, just kind of like a quick hey, I'm here. The spirit of a woman is thought to haunt the main house and the library. You know when she is around as you will smell the phantom scent of perfume. And meanwhile, at the hotel's bar, there's quite an affectionate spirit, recognized for kissing the bartender and at times visitors as well. Okay, so I've been pushed, shoved, touched, scratched by spirits, but I've never, ever been kissed. Well, that would be an interesting encounter. <laughs> While this one is a kisser, this next one is a kicker. He doesn't kick people, mind you, but this grumpy man is known to kick at furniture. Leaving the hotels and into the wilderness of Yosemite, remember, 95% of Yosemite is indeed wilderness. Many have reported seeing none other than Bigfoot wandering about. And there is at least one sighting of a Native American spirit of a man asking for help. This episode is dedicated to the missing. Dekran, Stacy, Timothy, David. Kiernan, Ruthann, Walter, Michael, George, Alan, Peter, Sandra, Richard, and Joel, and those who lost their lives, Derek, Miroslav, Jeannie, Dan, Todd, Emily, Jennifer, Hirofumi, Ramina, Ninos, Hormiz, Dean, Graham, the two boys, James, the unidentified man, Tim, Jason, Kenneth, Tomer, Vishnu, Menakshi, Lucian, James, Fred, John, Ellen, Miju, Oski, the nine plane deaths, the landslide hiker, the three hantavirus victims, and Carrie Stainer's victims, Carol, Julie, Silivani, and Joey. May you each rest in peace, and my thoughts are with you and your family and friends in the community, as these are all horrendous losses. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, they are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry. You could head on over to any of those awesome podcast platforms, such as Deezer, Owltel, Player FM, Google Podcasts, wherever you may roam. To listen to your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Romeoville, Illinois, Lucknow, India, Lexington, Kentucky, El Mirage, Arizona, and Baspleton, England. As always, you guys, it is appreciated. Thank you so much for stopping by, taking time out of your day. You're all amazing. If you have an idea for an episode, I would love to hear all about it. Want to be a future voiceover in an episode? Let me know all about that, too. Find me on Paranormal Prowler's podcast page on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Paraprowl or email me at Paraprowl at gmail.com. And we will see you next week.